more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, all you happy warriors. Great to be together with you, you heroic men enduring the scorching days of summer and now the frigid days of winter, going to work early every morning regardless of the weather, disciplining yourself and improving yourself and watching over your spouse and children if you have them and taking care of business, generating cash flow, and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You, who ignore your heart's desire to indulge your body's seductive whisper, instead, you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care about. You are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers before you have built. The barbarians know that even after they destroy the civilization that you've built, as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will live better than in anything they could ever have built for themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you, you beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow. You gorgeously courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical maturity. Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and have done all this. Yes, you are the natural audience of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that is just another day of privilege for me, because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life. You have your hand on the steering wheel of your life. As William Ernest Henley's great poem called Invictus ends, the last two lines, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. It is indeed my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show and reveal how the world really works. Yes, that's right. This is the only show 
in the entire digital universe that really does reveal how the world really works. That's right. And last week, in the last show titled, Yes, Be Happy, But How? Diagnosing and Curing Your Unhappiness, Fears, Anxieties, and Worries, that show uh, had a segment in it in which I interviewed or conversed or debated with Mrs. Lappin because she had objected to something I said in the show before that entitled The Power of Confidence, How to Acquire It and Project It in Business and Relationships. And during that show two weeks ago, The Power of Confidence show, I had said that in a hypothetical scenario where the genie pops out of the bottle and says, I've got two gifts. One is for your son and one is for your daughter. The one gift is the gift of confidence and the other is the gift of beauty and attractiveness. You may decide which child gets which. And I said that in that exact scenario, I would give confidence to my son and I would give beauty to my daughter. And uh, Susan Lappin took issue with aspects of that. And I think what she was basically doing was rejecting my thought experiment scenario. She was rejecting the idea that you have to choose one or the other. And, of course, she's right in that. In the real world, of course, you don't. But I was uh, making a point by setting up that thought experiment with a genie or the fairy godmother uh, that gave us that choice. And uh, something I wanted to mention last week, but I I didn't do it, um, was that um, obviously uh, the two are both important for men and women. But what's interesting is that the avenue of achieving confidence is different for men than it is for women. Uh, Women tend to feel confident from looking attractive, from feeling that they are looking attractive. Uh, Women can also achieve confidence in other ways, but that is the the most uh, fundamentally feminine way of feeling confident. Um, A man feels confident from only from achievements, almost never from how from his good looks, although dressing being dressed appropriately helps both men and women a lot as well. And so what I wanted to say was that feeling attractive gives a woman confidence. Feeling confident makes a man attractive. Not true for every single 100% of all men and all women, but as a generalization, that is pretty good. And um, I, as a matter of fact, received um, quite a lot of correspondence following that last week's show. And I'm actually going to read a few of them because uh, I found them interesting. Um, Here's one from uh, Aaron who writes, on confidence for your son, beauty for your daughter, and the discussion between you and Susan. Uh, It sounded a lot like what you might hear from my beautiful wife and I. 
uh, I would make the same choice. Why? I've had the good fortune to know a number of beautiful women, but I limit my remarks to four beauty contest winners that I've gotten to know well. Their beauty seems to enhance their confidence. But they are not reluctant to have children, and they do not spend extra money pampering themselves. If anything, when younger, they tried extra hard to get good grades or be athletic. One went on to be a third runner-up in the Miss America contest. Two didn't want to come across as dumb blondes, so they worked on other skills. One won national recognition as a pianist. Well, Aaron, you seem to have been incredibly blessed in the women that have crossed your path. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, also, I have a, a letter from um, Juan. Juan writes, Hi, Rabbi. I'm listening to you from Madrid, Spain. Fantastic podcast. My opinion is that Mrs. Lappin should have listened to the whole program on the 28th. The same thing happened to me at the beginning. Many thanks, Juan. Um, and I, I did pass that on to my wife. And um, here's one from Sharon. Um, I was listening to the podcast about being happy, and then Susan was brought on the podcast speaking about the rabbi's fairy godmother scenario, giving beauty and confidence to a male or female child. I knew some women would take issue with this, but I didn't think it would be Susan. Here's my take on it. I think the rabbi's correct. Sorry, Susan. The fairy godmother didn't give the parent a choice to give both assets to both children, so the parent had to make a choice. If the daughter is given beauty, she will have confidence from that. Let me tell you from my experience growing up as a dweeb, junior high school was horrible. As soon as I got contact lenses and learned how to do my hair properly, I started to have more confidence in high school. Beauty does not make all women who have beauty vacant and stupid. I suppose it can make some of them a little bitchy until they mature. As for giving confidence to a son, confidence will make the son more attractive. I married a wonderful man who was not the best-looking guy I could find, but his confidence attracted me to him. We were only 16 and 17 when we started dating, and you can imagine the skinny kid with acne. But he was so sure of himself, and he is now an airline pilot who instructs other pilots in the simulator and the classroom. He's an amazing man. His job allowed me to homeschool our children and take care of our home. We just recently celebrated 33 years of marriage. So if you only have the choice of beauty and confidence, as a woman, I don't mind having a little bit of good looks thrown my way. And I want my man to have confidence, which is so very attractive and sexy. Um, and here we have one from Ram. Uh, Ram writes, Dear Rabbi, we met at, and he mentions a place, I am so-and-so's son-in-law, mentioning the name of a friend of mine, and uh, you'll remember I introduced myself that way. It was a pleasure meeting you. I listened to both of the podcasts from the last two weeks. I listen every week regarding beauty versus confidence. There is a lot that can be said, but I wanted to write to you about three things pertaining to this matter. One, there may have been a misunderstanding when you were discussing this with your wife. I was under the impression that the theatrical situation you presented was that one can give their son and daughter only one of the two attributes, beauty or confidence, meaning that whichever one you gave to the son, the daughter automatically receives the other. And I'm not sure what a male can do with beauty without confidence. I'm very sure of what a female can do with beauty, which will generally also bring on confidence. You see how a number of people picked up on this very good point. Um, although Mrs. Lappin brought up some good points still, also, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it seemed that Mrs. Lappin was only seeing it from a female perspective and not a male one. Um, second point, I asked my wife the beauty versus confidence scenario, 
and without a second of hesitation, she answered that not only would she choose beauty for the daughter and confidence for the son, she said that those are the things that she prayed for after health when she was pregnant with our son and daughters. And lastly, number three, it was so refreshing to hear you both getting into a disagreement and ending with a disagreement and still having such mutual respect for one another despite each wanting to be correct. Thanks for the weekly podcast. They are very enjoyable. All the best. And uh, maybe just one, uh, one more. Um, okay, this is from Katie. Uh, Dear Rabbi Lappin, I laughed listening to the podcast How Between Your Wife and You. I recognize where your wife is coming from and understand her logic and perspective. Although clouded by pathos, I see why her truth was true to her, and I appreciate the dialogue and the way it was handled. Endearing. I'm a female, 28 years old, and according to standards I'm aware of, attractive. According to my own standards, confident. I, rec- I recognize the tease you present in your argument based on the content you choose and the way you safeguard yourself by confining loading, loaded words to hypothetical thought experiments. It's effective at provoking thought, which I appreciate. I agree with you. I'm keeping my response to the hypothetical question quick as it is just fun. I'm tapping my stream of thought out onto my iPhone to share with you, and pardon the grammar, but the logic that I deduced my answer with is as follows. I would give women beauty and men confidence, because in our society, beauty endows women with confidence, and confidence makes an otherwise unattractive man attractive. See, this is so good. You all get this. Obviously, I'm not going into discussion on value, ethics, morality, equality, etc., nor is this a statement on one's spiritual worth. Uh, I confine my response solely to what I recognize to be primitive animalistic patterns of response that appear to influence the allocation of resources and thus opportunities for expansion, relationship, upward mobility within the context of a producer-consumer society. Oh my goodness, Katie, you spend too much time at university, where power is a largely conscious or subconscious driving force confined to the psychological and physical realms. You may even have a master's degree, I've got to tell you. That's what it sounds like to me. And that's not a compliment, Katie. Uh, back to the last line of your letter. Therefore, I ask myself, what would endow each with more power as it is defined in a social historical context? And in that, of course, you're absolutely right. Cheers. And that's from Katie. Katie, thanks very much. That was a very thoughtful letter. And I think that that is um, pretty much, yeah, that is it. Uh, this is just a really nice letter from Cami. Um, I hope this email finds you, Susan, and your staff well. I've been listening to your podcast now for a few months. Enjoy them very much. I have teenage children listen to them when applicable, and have been known to send some of your podcasts to my adult children as well. Keep up the good work. I'm a Unitarian Christian who believes in the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I find the ancient Jewish wisdom you teach educational, beneficial, and refreshing. Uh, I've especially enjoyed episodes 46 and 48. I don't know them by the numbers. Uh, Because you enjoy knowing where your listeners live. Yeah, I do. I love hearing from people telling me where they are. I will tell you that we live in the beautiful state of Montana. Montana, do you have any listeners in our state? Uh, We actually have more than 100 Montana listeners have told me um, that they're listening. I think you would also like to know that I just ordered the book Hands Off This May Be Love for our teenage children, and I'm looking forward to getting it. I appreciate how you read all of your emails, whether good or bad, and hope this one is a good one for you. Thanks for all you do and teach. There are some wonderful voices out there, and you are one of them. Thank you, Cammy. Okay, that'll be it for the letters. But um, thank you, all those who wrote, and particularly those whose letters I chose to read. 
Thank you very much indeed, and uh, and really very, very much appreciated for sure. Um, okay, so on to an interesting thing. Um, a guy called Brett Stevens, uh, a good guy, uh, used to write, he was on staff at the Wall Street Journal, and then um, he... Um, then joined the New York Times. And it was in the New York Times that he published a column just before New Year um, 2020. Uh, I'm recording this um, just after New Year. Uh, actually, um, uh, well, it's already the 10th of the month, believe it or not. But uh, published on December 27th, 2019, uh, Brett Stevens wrote a piece called The Secrets of Jewish Genius. And uh, he, um, uh, he, he refers to a book that, one of many, many, many books that talk about uh, the way Jews are disproportionately successful among the ranks of, uh, not, uh, of Nobel Prize winners in academic areas, uh, how Jews are uh, disproportionately represented on the faculties of universities. And um, he doesn't speak about wealth in his article. <clears throat> and he says uh, the common answer f to explain this disproportionate Jewish representation in these fields is Jews tend to be smart. When it comes to Jews, it's true. Uh, Ashkenazi Jews have the highest average IQ of any ethnic group for which they are reliable uh, data. And he quotes 2005 data. Uh, this is no longer true, by the way. Uh, in the United States of America, there are Asian demographics that significantly outrank Jews on IQ testing. So he's quoting 15-year-old 15, 15 data. And more recently, they have done more recent. Although, of course, as everyone knows, IQ studies <laughs> are very, very much out of favor because um, they are awkward. IQ results, and by the way, uh, it's, um, it's something that is very well established in the field, and, uh, and that is that there is uh, very little in the way of um, uh, a more predictive metric uh, for people's trajectories than IQ within a certain range, by the way. That's an important caveat. Anyways, is during the 20th century, they made up about 3% of the U.S. population. Um, that's not true. They're about half of that, about 1.5% of the U.S. population right now. They won 27% of the U.S. Nobel Prize Sciences, 25% of the ACM Turing Awards. They account for more than half of world chess champions. Um, and, and by the way, uh, it would be just as uncomfortable were he to have added, and that's mostly all men very, very few females in that. So what does that mean? That only Jewish men are smart and not Jewish women? Obviously, as you can imagine, this set off a little bit of a firestorm. Uh, he says, but um, uh, um, one of the questions, of course, is how do they get to be uh, how do these Jews get to have higher IQs? I don't want to read his whole article, so that's why I'm just jumping from peak to peak. Um, and um, 
uh, he says um, it, he says so Jews don't only have this higher IQ uh, but they also uh, use the smarts differently okay then he says where do these habits of mind come from and uh, he says, well, there's a religious tradition in Judaism that asks the believer not only to observe and obey, but also to discuss and disagree and argue. Okay, fine, that's, that's somewhat true. Um, there is um, uh, a moral belief that the life of the individual has value in as much as it aids in making the life of every living thing more beautiful. All, all, all nice stuff, but, um, you know, the stuff's not persuasive, and... Um, it upset people, as you can imagine, because it suggests that Jews are different. And this is very, and this, this upset Jews, it upset secular people, it upset secular Jews. Uh, it didn't upset religious Jews, interestingly enough, as far as I can tell. And um, uh, there is also the understanding born of repeated exile that everything that seems solid and valuable is ultimately perishable, whilst everything that is intangible, mainly knowledge, is potentially everlasting. Um, so what he wanted to say is that Jews over the centuries have learned that uh, the most valuable thing they can have is have it in their head because that people can't take away from you when they make you move. Um, I'm skeptical about that because... Um, it suggests that uh, Jewish youngsters living a privileged life in the United States of America think to themselves, oh, I'd better study hard in case we get thrown out and we have to leave with nothing except what's in our heads. Uh, that would be a very naive and uh, incorrect picture of um, Jewish high school children. Simply not, not the case. Um, Anyway, that's that's what uh, that's what Brett Stevens wrote about, and um, and then he goes on. He finishes off by saying that uh, Jew hatred has made a comeback, uh, albeit under new guises. Anti-Zionism has taken the place of anti-Semitism. Uh, Jews have been murdered by white nationalists as well as black Hebrews. Hate crimes against Orthodox Jews have become an almost daily fact of life in New York City, and um, and again. I've discussed this extensively. There is also an article in Susan's Musings on our website explaining that uh, it's incorrect to view anti-Semitic incidents out of the context of attacks of violence against all Americans. If one focuses just on anti-Semitic attacks, you run the risk of beginning to mistakenly believe that non-Jewish Americans live in a tranquil cocoon of harmony and security where there is no violence and no crime? No. Uh, Anti-Semitic attacks have increased. There's, there's no question about that. But so have general crime statistics. And some of you are going to say, well, wait, wait, wait. Some cities have re reported lowering, dropping rates of murder. Um, Right, uh, no Agatha, not Baltimore or Chicago. Uh, but the truth is, murder rates are actually not going down anywhere. The only reason they appear to be is because of the incredible advances that uh, medicine has made, emergency room departments of local hospitals, the emergency uh, medical and ambulance personnel, 
uh, I think largely from uh, Middle East wars, the knowledge that has been gained in handling trauma is so incredible that it creates mistaken statistics. We say, oh, look, murder rates are down. That's only because uh, victims of murderous assaults and attacks get whisked off to the emergency room where they are saved, and so they do not become a murder statistic. But if instead of looking at murder rates, which is misleading in this way, you look at every city's rates of um, uh, assault with intent to commit grievous bodily harm, assault with intent to commit murder, there you'll see those figures, unfortunately, are climbing and climbing and climbing. And along with them, anti-Semitic attacks are climbing as well. And so uh, uh, somebody asked me just this morning on an interview, I was asked on a, a televised interview, um, so how would you go about fixing the problem of anti-Semitic violence in America? And I'd say you can't possibly fix it in isolation. The only way it can be fixed is for uh, America as a whole to become less violent and less uh, criminally driven. And so... Part of that requires the culture to adopt a totally different approach to crime. Right now, uh, leftist culture focuses heavily on being soft on crime. The removal of bail for uh, a number of crimes in a number of places, just one example. Uh, there are many others, decriminalizing um, theft and uh, vandalism and robbery up to certain amounts, very high amounts, by the way. So um, uh, the, the entire culture at the moment is soft on crime. And so obviously, why would you be surprised that crimes of violence against everybody are up and crimes of violence against Jews are up? Well, obviously, the message society is sending to a um, deculturated class is uh, we don't care. Do what you like. And it's not that the crime is going up and what is causing it to go up. What we've got to recognize is the natural condition of the male that has not been acculturated and not been civilized is selfishness, aggression, anger, and violence. That is the natural condition. I wish I could say that it does not apply to women at all. But I have been watching, and we'll do a different show on this, but if any of you have information on this, make sure you email it to me. You go to our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, be sure to uh, send me any information you have on female committed crime. I'm very interested in that. It is going up. It's climbing um, dangerously. And while you're at the website you might want to take a look at a product in the store called Boost Your Income. Three strategies for financial abundance. Uh, yeah, there, there really is such a thing as strategies for financial abundance. There really is. And uh, this is a one-hour program. It's on special price for listeners to this show. So go to Rabbi Daniel, rabbidaniellappin.com, go to the store and look for Boost Your Income. It's an audio program, 
about an hour, that's all. But it would be one of the best hour investments you can possibly make. Um, and again, I, I had to select only three. Uh, obviously, in our financial prosperity collection that you'll see, which is 10 audio lessons, uh, you'll see on the website as well. There are many, many more in the uh, financial abundance package. Uh, the books and the audio CDs, you'll find more. Um, I mean, so, so just to give you an example, um, how many people are uh, not happy warriors who have not taken charge of their lives, who do not say, I am the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, uh, who, you know, people who don't do that. But if you did do that, now I don't care at whatever level you're at. I don't care if you're unemployed. I don't care if you are employed. Whatever it is and you want to move up, you, you're not satisfied with your cash generation at the moment. You want to improve that. Well, uh, and this is not from the Boost Your Income program. That's three very important strategies. But I just wanted to give you another example to drive home the point that um, there is such a thing as simple strategies that you can deploy in your life that really make sense. Um, you know, and again, not it's not going to bring you cash this afternoon, right? The only way to do that is to go and hold up a convenience store. I'm sorry. Um, not that I'm encouraging that, do I need to say, but obviously it is becoming an increasingly popular way to go, unfortunately, the United States, because of an epidemic of crime brought about by unprecedented liberalized attitudes towards crime. In other words, all of these things have to be eased up on. Why? Because there is disproportionate impact on minorities. And so, you know what happens if we make it uh, necessary to have to pay bail or else you go into jail? A lot of minorities, they argue, cannot pay bail, so they, there's a disproportionate number of minorities. I'm, I'm giving you all the leftist pablum. Um, and so little by little, the message starts spreading through the culture. Nobody cares. We can do whatever we like. And certainly uh, there are police forces in many cities around the country that have become utterly demoralized and uh, do very perfunctory policing. Again, a message that soon reaches unacculturated and uncivilized males um, who have become barbarians. And unfortunately, uh, as I'm discovering, women as well. I've not yet seen statistics on this. I've not seen studies on this, but I am starting to go into it because I do want to get a, a clearer understanding of what this means in society and what this means to our culture. For that reason, the, uh, the, the question is not what is causing this breakdown in society and what is causing this increase in, in violence. No. What we've got to ask is what has eroded the forces that kept this barbarism at bay for all these years? And it began to fray and come apart as you know, as I always say, in the early 60s, which is a, a fairly good uh, approximation. And so, look, let me give you an example quickly. If, 
uh, God forbid an airplane crashes, comes down, immediately you get uh, everybody descending there, unless it happens in Iran, in which case the Iranians probably brought the plane down themselves. But uh, ordinarily the makers of the aircraft uh, show up, the uh, accident inquiry people, the National Air Transport Safety, the Federal Aviation Administration, everybody shows up in order to try and find out why did that plane come down. And uh, at the risk of sounding simplistic, um, I will tell you that uh, even though all those experts are coming together to figure it out, I know what brought the plane down. I know it in one word. It's called gravity. That's right. It's perfectly natural, perfectly normal. Now, what keeps the plane up there? That's the question. And it's, it's an amazing development of 100 years of human advance and technological and engineering sophistication. Um, we are able to extract energy out of jet fuel and turn that into thrust by means of a thing called a jet engine. And we can convert that thrust into what we call lift to keep the airplane airborne by means of things called wings. And uh, we can control the entire diabolical contraption with control surfaces operated by electrohydraulics. And uh, the thing then provides a smooth, safe, wonderful, rapid flying experience for the public to the tune of tens of thousands of flights every day. And it's pretty amazing. And so uh, what they're trying to figure out is not what brought the plane down, that's gravity. What they're trying to find out is, uh, you know, why did the engine stop providing thrust or why did the wings stop producing lift? And, uh, and that's what their analysis is all about. In the same way, the question is not what's causing this increasing dysfunctionality in society. What is causing the violence, the crime, the, uh, the rudeness, the, uh, the lack of being able to get on? What's causing that? The answer is it's normal and natural. The question is what produced the frighteningly fragile flower of civilization that has prevailed up till now? And I'll tell you the answer is very simple. The answer is Judeo-Christian Bible-based thinking that laid the foundation for the kind of civilization that you see described in America's founding documents that provide the kind of civilization that prevailed in Europe over these last few hundred years. Uh, yes, there have been wars. Yes, there have been problems. But by and large, compared to the rest of the world, Western civilization, which is, yes, Bible-based, uh, has produced a, um, a, a society in which ballots were preferred to bullets, where women had a respected role in society, where the free market and the creation of wealth was seen as valuable, where education was important, where civic institutions were built, where governments were constrained. Yeah, all of that is real. And when you remove the fuel, well, 
it comes crashing down all perfectly normally. The normal condition for males, and if you're not sure about this, just go and watch toddlers playing in the park on a Sunday morning. And if their parents are distracted, watch how what happens. If even a little girl comes to take away a toy that a little boy is playing with, his natural state emerges. He pushes her over with all the strength of his two-year-old body. He knocks her flying. That is the natural condition of man. And it is the exclusive role of families. It's the exclusive role of parents to acculturate those boys and girls as well and make them part of society. Um, please don't for one moment think this job can be done by schools. If it could, then the behavior in every American government indoctrination camp, I mean public school, uh, would be beautiful. But if you take a look at the standard of behavior at much of American public education, you see that schools are incapable of doing this. Don't think government can do it. They can't. Gov government and the state should be on its knees in gratitude to mothers and fathers who are working hard to raise their families because nobody but them has the capacity to turn young boys from thugs, from thugs, incipient thugs, <laughs> thugs in making uh, predatory and dangerous, conscienceless thugs. Nothing has the ability to do that like a devoted mother and father. There is no other way to do it. And uh, so, you know, you want to you cure anti-Semitism? Well, cure the way everybody grows up in America, and you will at the same time be curing anti-Semitism without any doubt whatsoever. Now, back to uh, the discussion of Jewish intelligence or, or Jewish success. Uh, there is... Uh, no question that success in academia, in other words, success in winning Nobel Prizes, uh, success in academics, being on the faculty of universities, uh, all of those areas of success do indeed owe much to IQ, to intelligence. But success in making money does not. Uh, for success in making money, super high intelligence, the kind of intelligence that is really good if you want to become a superb chess player, the kind of intelligence that is really good if you want to get a doctorate in mathematics and win a Nobel Prize in that field, um, that is all high-end IQ that works very well. But that same high-end IQ works against you in the wonderful world of business. I explain that much more fully in uh, Thou Shall Prosper and Business Secrets from the Bible, uh, two of my books that you will see on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com. I don't want to go into now uh, the reasons, but suffice it to say, you can really trust me when I tell you that the uh, 
that very high IQ is a disadvantage, in the same way that very low IQ is a disadvantage, by the way. But uh, the overwhelming majority of us in that middle range of normality in the IQ field, uh, we all can do very good, uh, very well at business. <laughs> it's not... Uh, uh, it's not a case of intelligence at all. However, Brett Stevens was writing specifically about intelligence, and so I did want to address that because he did not come up with the most important explanation for high Jewish intelligence, uh, which, by the way, also works for the Asian groups that, as I pointed out, that is a demographic that has overtaken, in the United States at least, their IQ is slightly above the average Jewish IQ. It's all, I mean, it's all way up there. But uh, the explanation was not even touched on by, <clears throat> by uh, Brett Stevens. He didn't come close to it. And so I do want to tell you about it. Um, I mean, I will tell you he got, uh, he got, very attacked. There's no question about it. He's like the one conservative on the staff of uh, um, of the uh, New York Times. He's the only member of the staff of the New York Times, I believe, who is a supporter of Israel. So uh, they really called for his head. They really wanted to chop it off. Um, but uh, but anyway, I mean, you know, there it is. The fact remains that um, that. Uh, not only in the United States, but being about one-fifth of one percent of the world population, maybe even less, maybe close to one-tenth of one percent of the world's population, but 54 percent of world chess champions are Jewish men. I'm going to, I'm going to drop that in there uh, just for you to think about. Uh, you may remember I've spoken in the past about um, a distance from the mean and how the bell curve looks for things like uh, strength, height, and intelligence between men and women. <clears throat> uh, 27% of the world's Nobel uh, winners in physics, 31% of the Nobel winners in medicine. So it is crazy, right, that an identifiable group of about a tenth of a percent of the population has this disproportionate success. But remember, none of this is talking about business and money. This is only talking about academic fields. Uh, for instance, um, they go on to talk about that 21% um, of the students at Ivy League schools are Jewish. Um, the rest would be Asian. But Ivy League schools discriminate against Asian students because, once again, they are so racially obsessed and they are so determined to try and make uh, the, the student population at Ivy Leagues look exactly like the general population, racially speaking, in the United States. So all of this distortion goes on. <clears throat> uh, 26% of the Kennedy Center honorees are Jewish. Um, and so on and so forth. 51% uh, of the Pulitzer Prize winners for non-fiction, and so it goes. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the study, there's a famous study called IQ and Global In Inequity. 
they said that a Jewish average IQ of 115 is uh, eight points higher than the generally accepted IQ of the next highest and approximately 40% higher than the global average IQ of 80. That's what they say. Uh, I don't know, you know. I don't trust a lot of the IQ information because it is so politically charged that there's a considerable distortion about that. But um, at any reason, at any rate, they attacked Brett Stevens for even daring to hint at Jewish intellectual superiority because that makes you guilty of the ultimate crime of racism. Um, as it turns out, one of the reasons they attacked Brett Stevens' article from December 27th was that um, he quoted, he, made, he linked to an IQ study uh, by three well-known anthropologists, including one who, if you don't mind, has been accused of being a racist. And in the weird logic of the left, if you've been accused of being a racist, well, why? That's what you are. And therefore, if anyone quotes your work, well, why? They're also a racist. So by that twisted logic, Brett Stevens was tarred with a racist brush for writing an article on Jewish IQ. Um, Mark Twain, of course, said this. I've quoted this to you before. He wrote this, obviously, in the 1800s. Um, the Jews are peculiarly and conspicuously the world's intellectual aristocracy. Jewish contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, etc. are way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. He has made a marvelous fight in this world and has done it with his hands tied behind him. By the way, if uh, any of you are new listeners to the show, it, may it might sound as if I'm trying to boast, oh, my people, we're really smart. But... Uh, those of you who've listened to the show enough know what I think of 70% of America's Jewish population who must have been assiduously taking stupid tablets to overcome their natural advantages because their uh, political leanings demonstrate incredible stupidity. But at any rate, Mark Twain wasn't a racist. He was a realist, and he just recognized the facts, and so did Brett Stevens. And um, uh, and again, there's this idea that how does this come about? Well, Jews value uh, learning. And again, you know, I just don't know. I think it's true in a very small proportion of the Jewish population. There's a small part of the Jewish population that is orthodox and that um, sees the obligation to study ancient Jewish wisdom as crucial and binding, and they do. And yes, I, I don't think that that is irrelevant, but it's a small part of the population. What is it, 30%? That's it, at most. Um, and so um, uh, it's, it's difficult to... I think it's a factor, but the most important factor was not mentioned at all. And, though, and, and that's the factor that um, I want to talk about. Now, before I go into the main reason for Jewish intelligence, for Jewish smarts, for Jewish uh, um, IQ, I am going to um, just give you a little bit of a a little bit of a warning perhaps, just in that I know how many of you 
listen together with your children. And I love that, by the way. I, um, I get real pleasure. I get a surge of warmth when I think about parents and children sitting and listening to this show together. I love that. Uh, it also makes me very conscious that I have to be careful about adult topics. And so by way of warning, this is going to be an adult topic. However, I also want to say that uh, I discuss these things very openly and always have with my children from about the age of 15 onwards, not in groups, never in groups, only individually. Uh, and so for whatever that's worth, you should be aware of that. So from the age of 15, I'm already, I, ha I would uh, study with my son and with my daughters, and I would do the passage about uh, in Genesis of Judah consorting with his daughter-in-law, but he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law when he had sex with her. He thought she was um, a lady making herself available to him in exchange for some money. Uh, and we talk about that. Um, we talk about uh, the fact that just prior to that discussion, there was uh, a discussion of Judah's three sons um, who uh, uh, avoided, they, they had relations with their wives, but avoided having children. And I speak about it, why they, why they did that. I speak about how they did it, and it's, it's all there in the text. Uh, earlier on, we covered um, an individual called Lemech who had two wives, Ada and Selah. And ancient Jewish wisdom says that his plan was to keep one for sex and one for reproduction. And so we, uh, we speak about the tendency uh, of men to separate those two areas and the ways in which they do legitimately separate and the ways in which they belong together. Um, we speak about two lists, and I do this, age 15, they are reading the lists. There are two parallel lists in Leviticus, around about chapter 19, 20, 18, 19, 20, somewhere there. Um, the, the reason I'm not 100% sure is I don't have a Bible in front of me. And um, for the most part, in ancient Jewish wisdom, we, in, when it comes to the five books of Moses, we don't use chapters as much as we use what are called sedras. There are 54 divisions of the five books of Moses. And so that's in the sedra known as kedoshim, uh, meaning holiness. And, uh, and so you've got two lists there of prohibited sexual relations. So that's where it says you're not allowed to sleep with your sister, you're not allowed to sleep with your grandmother, you're not allowed to sleep with a married woman, etc., etc., and uh, and I I go through with my sons and daughters when they hit the age of, of 15 or, or thereabouts. So in some cases it was 14, in some cases 16, but thereabouts. Um, why are there two lists, just a few, like a chapter or two apart from each other? And why is the order of the lists different? You know, why does one start with the uh, uh, prohibited family members, you know, not allowed to sleep with your stepmother or your sister, etc. The other one starts off with uh, uh, you're not allowed to have a relationship with a married woman. And so we talk about those, you know, why, why that list is. What I'm saying is the Bible has always proved to be my most wonderful uh, tool for sex education for our children. And, um, 
and it's it's wonderful because there's no embarrassment there's no awkwardness it's not clinical uh, it's it's spiritual and it's all within the context of god's plans for his children so uh just therefore by way of of warning just be aware i am going to be talking now about uh, the most important factor in building up intelligence. Do you know what it is? Sexual restraint. It's as simple as that. And when you see this at work from generation to generation, one generation after another, three generations, four generations, five generations, and sexual restraint is practiced, uh, you will see this amazing intellectual capacity grow. It's really quite remarkable. And um, I, I laugh because it's so unsuspected. But if you think about it for a moment, um, think about how a, uh, a pornography addiction can damage the straight thinking of a man. I, of course it does. Any sex obsession makes it difficult, verging on the impossible, for a man to develop his mind and to think effectively and to develop thought processes that effectively help him understand how the world really works. And so, uh, obviously, this is a, uh, a scary, a really scary reality. But it's, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons that you find that um, in Leviticus chapter 21, there is a discussion there about the kind of marriages that um, priests are allowed to contract. And it speaks, again, a lot of restraint. You can't just have sex with whoever you like. Um, she's got to be a, um, uh, she can't be a divorcee. And there's a whole, I don't want to go into the details, because each and every one of them warrants a, uh, an hour discussion on its own. And uh, I do those in, in, other, in other venues. But for here, Leviticus chapter 21 shows that God imposes additional sexual restraints on the priests. Now, this isn't because sex is unholy and priests are holy, so it's incompatible. No! One of the functions of the priests was also to act in a leadership role. They played a very important role, um, including, by the way, very often they would also play uh, a role in judging and other areas of national leadership. And so for leadership, God wants the leaders to be as thoughtful and as smart and as insightful as possible. And in order to achieve that end, that demographic within the Israelites was to be um, subjected to additional forms of sexual restraint. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 17, there are uh, rules about what a king can do. And there are, again, sexual restraints compared to other kings of other nations. Um, so, and again, uh, David, for instance, was severely punished um, by uh, the prophet, by Nathan the prophet, and then by God. Why? Because he indulged himself with Bathsheba. In other words, not recognizing the rule of sexual restraint for leaders. Um, and, and so it goes. Uh, 
uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 6, verse 26, speaks about the relationship between a, a zona in Hebrew is a, a woman of loose morals or um, I don't want to say a prostitute because a prostitute isn't viewed with the same uh, disdain and contempt in uh, ancient Jewish wisdom as she is in self-righteous and smug American society. And so uh, uh, it's, it's a little bit different. The translations are not uh, helpful there. But f again, for just for the present purposes right now, uh, it speaks about the linkage uh, between a prostitute and a loaf of bread. And in that context, the prostitute is symbolic of sexual concupiscence, and the loaf of bread is symbolic of deeper understanding and effective living. And so, again, uh, King Solomon in the book of Proverbs making this link that abandoning sexual restraint is something that is going to damage the intellect of you and your children and your children's children, um, particularly if they learn from you that uh, sexual fulfillment is the most important thing on the planet well, they're going to adopt that same lifestyle, damaging their own intellects and their children will, and by that time, three generations of it, and I'm afraid you've pretty much got unemployable grandchildren. Seriously. There's, there's nothing you can do. They, they, they simply lack the IQ to be able to function. That is the tragedy. Now, um, the... Um, is you know, are we going to find university studies that uh, test this and, and check out this theory? No, we won't, because the university, the ac the academy, will never ever embark on certain areas of study. Certain areas are just completely verboten. Uh, for instance, and this is true to this very day. Right now, if an academic wants to embark on a study that shows that temperatures are not rising, he doesn't get funding. He's not going to get it, not going to be able to do it. Um, any, anybody at a university who wants to talk about the fact that at Glacier National Park in the United States of America, there's a beautiful national park called Glacier National Park, and at the visitor center, uh, and I mean, I, I've seen, everyone has seen this, you can actually see some glaciers from the visitor center, and there are signs, and I remember more than one sign that said, look and enjoy because by the year 2020, you won't see any more glaciers. Well, it's now uh, beyond 2020. It is 2020, and uh, not only are the glaciers still there, but some of them are actually bigger than they were when those signs were put up. And so um, if uh, an academic wanted to do a study on the fact that Despite earlier predictions, glaciers are not vanishing and the polar ice caps are not melting, will not get funding. If an academic today wants to do a study uh, showing the faults and flaws in materialistic Darwinism, he will not get funding. Uh, the uh, um, in spite of all its faults and flaws, 
in spite of the outright contradictions from the Cambrian explosion evidence, um, Darwinism is held onto in the American Academy because the alternative is unthinkable. They will not tolerate or dream of allowing discussion of the alternative. The alternative is, <laughs> well, maybe in the beginning God created heaven and earth, but no, 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 no. Um, and so another area um, that, uh, and by the way, in IQ studies, not allowed in today's university. Why? Because it appears that on an average level, there are definitely IQ differences between different racial groups in America. And uh, that is simply not allowed to be discussed. Uh, by the way, needless to say, you know, just because on average Jewish IQ is high doesn't mean that every Jew is smart, as I've pointed out in the past. Uh, uh, that is not how it works. That's not what averages mean. But um, anyway, so the notion that there would be a study that says uh, engage in less unrestrained sex. In other words, build a fence, build a hedge of roses around your sexuality. Protect your sexuality. Anything like that reeks of religion. And so there is no way, even... Even if once they see, hey, you know what, if we look around us and we just look at societies in America and around the world and we say, hey, you know what, um, yeah, this is very strange. You, you generally find among um, some groups that, uh, that enjoy high uh, IQ levels like certain Asian demographics, you pretty much find – standard traditional family life you don't you just don't find a whole lot of um, sexual shenanigans going on right Harvey Weinstein was unfortunately is unfortunately Jewish but let me tell you something Harvey Weinstein's parents Miriam and Max Weinstein after whom he named his company Miramax they were very traditional they had a very traditional marriage. And Harvey's dad, Max, believe me, he got married fairly young. He didn't gallivant around. He didn't have 39 sexual partners. He just, it, that wasn't who he was. And so, uh, not surprisingly, Harvey came out to be fairly intelligent and built up a good business. But then because in the show business, the availability of women for 100 years has been one of the perks for men in show business, and Harvey had no idea that the rules had changed, uh, he began indulging. And excessive sexual indulgence plays havoc with IQ. There it is. Friends, remember you heard it here first because it's going to become increasingly tough for the culture, particularly corners of academia, to continue to ignore this simple reality about life. Yes, the religious rules, restrictions, and restraints concerning sex that seem, oh, so very primitive, and, uh, and we've, we've grown beyond them. Well, it turns out that there was a 
pretty good reason, apart from any other good reasons. One very good reason for them is protection of your intellect, maintenance of your mind. This is important stuff. And you can see that I wanted to give you an opportunity to decide whether you wanted to share this with your children or not. Or maybe maybe you will share it with the children in your own words at your own time at uh, whenever is appropriate and suitable. But uh, this is really, really important. And um, uh, and so it is in 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 Jewish life today. Yeah, you can say what you like. Yes, there's a there's a respect for education among certain groups. Uh, in the Orthodox, there is regular study of the Torah. And does that have a good impact on mental acuity? I have no doubt. I'm sure it does. Um, if you study every day, yes, of course it does. Absolutely, it does. But. Uh, even more important than that is that um, every, and I'm going to say Jewish man here, knowing full well that what I'm saying applies only to, as I said, a no more than 30% of self-identified American Jews. Uh, statistics are even lower elsewhere in the world. But uh, for this demographic, just think about this for a moment that a Jewish guy gets married and he's at the, uh, you know, pretty close to the height of his um, uh, sexual and hormonal uh, powers. Uh, maybe that peaks it for a man at 18 or 19. But so what, you know, guy in, in Jewish circles, not unusual for a guy to get married at 23, 24. You know, not, I mean, that's very, very typical. So there he is getting married, and, uh, and he might even be getting married at 22 or 23. Right? I, I know a number of young guys at the moment who are in their early 20s, 21, 22, 23, and they are actively engaged in courting. They're not dating. They're courting, and each one, and I spoke to one just a week ago, uh, each one expects to be married uh, within 2020 for sure. So, um, and I'm recording this in January 2020. So, uh, uh, this is very normal. They get married, yeah, because you, it's, it's tough to ask a young man to stay chaste and pure, um, you know, till he's 29 or 32. It's, it's just hard. Uh, and it's it's it, it's it's and and if he doesn't, the tendency then is once again to become you know it's very it's very rare for people to be measured in their vices, right? If if you could only smoke, if you were a very devoted smoker and you want to give up smoking, but then you say you know what I'm going to reduce to one cigarette a day. Now if you could do that. I myself, I'm not a doctor, but I myself have never been persuaded that that would cause any severe problem. It just is that nobody does one cigarette a day, right? Two drinks a week, no problem. It's Look, the reason um, AA works so well is because they say if get off drinking altogether. If you have a problem with alcohol, you have to quit everything. I get it because it's hard to do just a little. And so it makes perfect sense to, to say to a young man, you know what, you're 19, 20, you should start thinking. Uh, you've got to make sure you can make a living. Let's get on to that as quickly as we can so you can get married when you're 21, 22, so you don't have to go through uh, difficult years during that period. 
and it isn't it isn't good for you right as uh, as a man to simply have no relationship with a woman no meaningful and profound relationship with it's just not good not good for man to be alone says the beginning of genesis and it's absolutely true so a guy gets married and then look what happens so he gets married and um Right, this is wonderful. All of a sudden, he can enjoy physical intimacy with his wife. This is like dreams. I mean, uh, during his adolescent years, he's had dreams of this, and now it's all there. And um, uh, two weeks after his, or three weeks, whatever you want to say, a week after his marriage, whatever it is, uh, guess what happens? His wife begins her menstrual period. And you know what? He's no longer allowed to sleep with her. That's right. Restraints, regulation, rules. And then for about 12 days, typically, he doesn't sleep with her. Think about what that kind of discipline does. Just think. And then you will be homing in on the main reason for Jewish IQ. Now, remember, I'm not talking about money-making ability. That's quite different. That is based on understanding how the world really works, which doesn't require super high IQ. But for super high IQ and uh, mental acuity, yes, you are looking now at the most significant factor in brain development and in IQ development and in mind maintenance. It's hugely powerful. And it's also great for the marriage because 12 days later, it's like a new marriage. It's like a new wedding. It's like a new honeymoon. Because just imagine what this guy is going through. 12 days of restraint, 12 days of celibacy after having got married and got to know the joys of marital intimacy. Wow. And the couple comes together again after 12 days. And... uh, and there, you know, there it is. They, uh, they have uh, two to three weeks together, whatever it is. And then once again, the periodicity of living with a woman comes to the fore. And once again, restraint. And during the subsequent years of marriage, in spite of huge temptation. And ladies, I, I say this with all respect and in all seriousness, you don't know the temptations to which your husband is subject. You cannot believe it because you're not a man. Um, You don't know how somehow appealing a married man is out there in the world. You cannot imagine the opportunities that your husband has turned away from. You can't imagine. But as a religious commitment, knowing that those options are not available to him and that his wife cannot even say to him, hey, Jake, no problems. Uh, I don't mind an open marriage. His only answer is, well, it's very sweet of you, but unfortunately God doesn't agree with you, so I cannot take advantage of your kind um, openness. And by the way, neither is it reciprocated to from my end. So, yeah, all of that is is very, very clear, very, very powerful. 
Uh, this is uh, embedded in ancient Jewish wisdom. It's something that uh, Lapins learned from their parents when they were 15 years old. And uh, it's something that, that really everybody should know. But, as I said, you are never, ever going to hear from the academy in its current uh, devolved and corrupt state in America. You will never hear from the American academia uh, this idea that sexual restraint is a good thing. No, it's primitive, it's religious, it's biblical. We are now enlightened. And after all, we know that sex is nothing more than a spasm in the spinal column. And we know that it's exactly the same for men and for women. And casual sex is great for men and it's great for women. And oh, all right, this is the stuff that's put out at universities. Um, I was shown, a few years ago, I was shown the um, introductory package for students at Yale. Yale University started as a school of, of religion and Bible and divinity. Yale University, uh, and I don't know if they still do, but this was only a few years ago, uh, they handed out packages, sex packages, to freshmen coming into the university for the first time. Uh, I have no doubt that part of the purpose is to shock newcoming students out of the morality of their families and their parents' homes and introduce them to the amorality of the university campus. I have no doubt about that, as I have no doubt that this fundamental linkage between sexual restraint and uh, mental acuity uh, will never be spoken of at the university campus. Never on a university campus will you hear anybody saying, yes, sexual concupiscence is bad for your mind and the minds of your descendants. You'll never hear that. But you have heard it here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. And you know that it's true. Not because I told you, but because as I'm talking, you've been thinking about life in general. And while I'm talking... You've been contemplating reality. And while I'm talking, you've been thinking of circumstances and conditions, and you've realized, hey, that's incredible. I never would have guessed it, but I can see, yes, it is absolutely true. With all its wonderful and all its horrifying implications for society. The website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, easy to send me a note from there. You go to the About Us and Contact Us tab. And uh, do tell me where you're listening from. I had some wonderful ones this week. Philippines, uh, India, um, Uganda, Kenya, South Africa, uh, Zimbabwe. Um, did I say Chile? Uh, we had Chile, Argentina this week. Um, we had uh, in Central America, we had Panama and Colombia. Uh, I, I just got a, a bunch of wonderful uh, opportunities to put new pins in my world map. So uh, thank you very much indeed. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com. You can write to us there. You can also read Susan's musings on anti-Semitism. And um, I will just wrap up by saying 
that uh, going back to confidence and beauty, um, I, I don't remember if I pointed this out last week in my debate with Susan. Maybe I did, but I certainly clearly remember the very first time I ever saw her. Um, she was a guest at my synagogue. I was a single rabbi, which was a, a, a not a good situation, uh, particularly since I had resolved to not date any of the single women that were members of my congregation, which was made up largely of young single Jews that had migrated to my synagogue in California from around the country and in some cases around the world. And there were a number of wonderful young women, but I felt that once they had already become involved with the synagogue, it was just, it, it was no good for me to, to date them. It was just going to lead to problems. And so there I was, barring myself from dating women in the congregation and being preoccupied. I started my first counseling uh, with people at 5 a.m. in the morning, and I taught until 9 p.m. at night. So there wasn't a whole lot of time for an active social life. And to tell you the truth, uh, I was becoming quite dismayed at my prospects. I knew that if I didn't get married soon, it was not going to be a good thing for me. And yet I just didn't see how this was going to be able to happen. And I, I prayed. I was distraught. There were times I was deeply unhappy. And, um, and on this particular Friday night, I noticed this uh, young woman sitting four rows back in uh, the synagogue. And I did not say, that woman has an amazing mind. That woman can solve quadratic equations in her head. I never said that. I never said that woman seems to be extremely self-confident. I really have to get to know her. No. I, look, I'm telling you what happened. What happened was I said, I don't think I have ever seen a more beautiful woman ever. I find myself irresistibly drawn to her. And unless there are obstacles or problems or drawbacks of which I'm obviously currently unaware, I want to marry her. And um, we got engaged about 12 days later. So that's how it went then. However, and, and this is very, very true, um, when we had children, we had our first child uh, was, uh, two, two, uh, a year and a half, two years later, and uh, it was a little bit after that that we decided to homeschool our children. Now, uh, back then, I have to tell you, homeschooling was not nearly as popular as it is today. And even today, uh, there is stigma attached in many areas of the, of the United States to homeschooling. Other parts of the world, enormous stigma. Uh, there is a listener, a, a wonderful couple in Vilnius, Lithuania. And... Um, I, um, I'm getting to know them a little bit. They've been listening to the show for a long time. Uh, or does he has. He just got married to a lovely lady five months ago. And uh, it happens to be that in Lithuania, homeschooling was banned. They just opened it up again recently. But um, for my wife, Susan, to face all the criticism, both in the Jewish community and from without, uh, because of homeschooling our children, that took enormous confidence. Just think about it. Had she not had confidence, I wouldn't have been able to have the benefits I've had of a homeschooling family. Um, 
a few years after that, I very much wanted to sail our sailboat across the Pacific to Hawaii. It was just a, it was a, a dream I had. You know, it wouldn't have been the end of the world if I didn't do it. But since I owned a boat that was seaworthy and my family was still uh, fairly small, we only had three or four children. And uh, fairly small. I can I can imagine how some people react to that. Um, uh, we I said you know we want to cross the Pacific. Well, had my wife lacked confidence in herself and me, she would have said, "Are you mad? With three or four tiny little children? Absolutely not." She never said that. She never even questioned it. She immediately started. Um, working on the provisioning. It took a year of preparation to the point where she knew what every meal was going to look like on the crossing and where every ingredient of every meal was stowed, whereabout in the boat it was found. And uh, I spent time strengthening the boat and redoing the rigging and uh, all working on my navigation skills, which were rather rusty. And um, and we crossed the, the Pacific in our own sailboat. And... Uh, that couldn't have happened without confidence. And so uh, I would say that um, uh, Susan, whilst obviously beautiful and and attracted me with her attractiveness and her beauty, she obviously also had confidence, and that confidence grew. And I do think that through a marriage and a happy family and an adoring husband – a woman gains incredible poise. Uh, poise is another word for confidence, I think, and um, and and I think that 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 is true. So uh, yes, attractiveness uh, is the result of confidence in men, and confidence is very often the result of attractiveness in women. So that I think brings the topic to an end on confidence. It also brings to an end the topic of uh, Jewish exceptionalism in the intelligence area. And uh, I hope you are okay with me dealing with uh, this very adult topic on the show. I hope that was okay with you. Thanks so much for being part of the show. As always, I appreciate you doing whatever you do to help spread the show and encourage like-minded friends of yours to try the show out. Uh, I appreciate that. As you know, it can be heard on LibSing. It can be heard on SoundCloud. It can be heard oh, on so many on YouTube, on so many different platforms, the iTunes, of course. Uh, basically, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can hear the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. So it's easy uh, to get people to give it a try, I think. At any rate, whether it's easy or not, many of you are doing it, obviously, and I deeply appreciate that. Thanks very much for being part of the show. I've enjoyed the opportunity once again to talk to you. And uh, I say that until we are together again next week, I wish you a week of good times in your faith, in your friendships, in your finances, and in your family. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you. Filling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. 
This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.